Get ready for a no BS approach to health and fitness. This is NBS Fitness Radio. What's up? Welcome back to NBS Fitness Radio. I'm here with my good buddy, Paul Jackson. Uh, Paul is the head football strength and conditioning coach for Utah State. Uh, Paul and I go way back, probably 13-ish years, 14-ish years, uh, back on the staff at um, strength and conditioning staff at LSU. And uh, excited to have him on the podcast and to talk about athletic development today. So, Paul, man, say hey, and then kind of give us, uh, kind of give us your career path. You've done a lot of different things. I think it'd be uh, beneficial for people to kind of hear your background. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, appreciate you having me on. It's great to catch up. You know, like you said, we've been buzzed for a long time, but don't always get the link up. So this, this is a good opportunity to do that. Well, let's talk some shop. Uh, professionally, I started out in a in a commercial gym. Was a personal trainer at a New York sports club. I had played college football, always been an athlete, wanted to be a back around that. Uh, so tried to figure out how to do it. Um, was lucky enough to get an internship with the New York Giants. So my first job is with my hometown pro football team. So how about that? Um, <laughs> from there, moved on to Parisi Speed School. Uh, did some combine prep, youth training, a uh, bunch of stuff. That that place was a, a major, major plus for my career because it, it made you have to program. You're not doing the same thing every day. Yep. A lot of us just grow up in the weight room. Uh, so if you don't have a track background, you've never really thought about programming movement and speed sessions where at Parisi you have uh, designated speed sessions, agility sessions, and so on. So uh, having to think about how to program those and progress things and progress things uh, was big for me. Um, from there, went to Louisiana State University where, where we got together. Uh, originally went there as a GA and then was hired on full-time, spent four years there, won a national championship, was around a bunch of great players. Mentor Tommy Moffitt, one of the best to ever do it. Met with him and learned so much from him and was able to add to his tree a little bit. From there, I got my first head strength coach job. Uh, it was at Miami of Ohio up in the MAC. Uh, left there and went to Southern Mississippi, which was in Conference USA at the time. Then went to Ole Miss. Was at Ole Miss for eight years. That was, you know, the bulk of uh, what, what I've been able to accomplish as a head strength coach. And then was at South Carolina for a brief bit. And now I'm in my second year at Utah State. Awesome, brother. Very cool, man. Um, all right, cool. So kind of our topic for today is athletic development. And so it's like one of the questions I like to, to reach out or to start with is like, what areas of athletic development have you seen be underdeveloped in high school athletes um, over your career? So when kids are coming from high school into college, what are kind of the biggest gaps you're usually seeing? Well, to be honest, some of it's not even physical things. It's it's a tends to be a lack of self-awareness and self-evaluation skills because a lot of private gyms or their parents, you know, they're, they're pulling for them and you're trying to build their confidence up. And, and they're not always, uh, I don't want to say not truthful, but they're not always realistic with what they can do. Uh, we, we get guys a lot of times who come in and, and every lineman I get says, oh, coach, I, I squat 500 pounds. <laughs> You know, I'm not I'm not quite sure that that's right. I was like, we'll find out. You know, we, we will load it up. We'll, we'll see what we got. But uh, I think that that's the issue of an ability to uh, be coached and, and critiqued without being oversensitive or losing confidence. I think that's a big thing. And, and just kind of in addition to that, it goes with it. The lack of willingness to call each other out. It used to be yeah. like some of the LSU teams we, we were around. Those guys would call each other out. It, it was serious business. They weren't afraid of a little. 
um, confrontation or, or whatever. A lot of these kids, they, they, they won't say it. Because you know, like if they see someone doing bad technique. Technique, all that. Technique or, or you know, things that, character things, things that we're, we're not going to do this. You're skipping reps and stuff mm. like that. Um, calling them out and saying it. Physically, for us, probably the biggest thing that happened was a lack of overhead mobility. Yeah. We've had to take even jerks and snatches out because we were getting 10, 15 kids in every class who couldn't get in a good overhead position with that. And then the same thing probably with, with, with the squat, just getting guys to depth. Guys chasing numbers tend to lose some of the ankle mobility and, and, and uh, some of that stuff. So I would say shoulders and ankle mobility are probably limited. Why, I mean, do you think that's just because they're sitting in chairs all day and then when they're going into the weight room, it is more of a focus on moving weight versus moving well. Absolutely. So they're sitting down. Uh, everybody's on their phone. So posture is awful. They're pulled forward. Uh, if you have, from a development standpoint, you you probably are in a situation where if you're a one-sport athlete and you don't have a strength coach or if you don't have access to a good facility or the money to pay for a good facility, you may play a sport and then do nothing the rest of the year. So there's a lot of that. If you're a multi-sport athlete, there may never be any training that occurs because you're always in season. So you may never get to develop any strength or any of the things that are not um, done outside of your sport. So that's big. But then what you talked about, guys chasing outputs instead of technique, especially early on. Like, who cares what a 14-year-old squads? You know, like, yeah. like, really, who cares? Like, let's make it look good first. Make sure we have the ability to perform the human movements of a squat or a hinge or whatever we're working on. And then you load it up and you try to get it. So I do think those things get out of whack a little out of order and, and leave some issues later on. Y'all have a way of assessing athletes when they first come in. Like, how's your... Because I think um, at the high school level, what I see is it's just kind of this blanket program. If there is a program, it's just this blanket program where whether you're a freshman or a senior, you're all doing the exact same stuff. Um, but like, how, do y'all have a way of assessing athletes when they first come in? Um, to kind of see what areas, you know, do they have the overhead mobility? Do they have the ability to squat to depth? Like, do y'all have anything like that? Yeah, so I wouldn't say a structured system uh, or an FMS type thing. We, we don't have no. anything in place like that. We do, we, we bring, we assume that every kid who comes in has never worked out before. So we treat them yeah. like they're in kindergarten. So we're teaching them everything from the beginning. Uh, part of that is, is body comp assessment. So we are taking postural assessments. We are noticing things. We're looking uh, at their gait. We are we are watching to see if there's going to be clues early on just from looking at them that this kid may have a deficiency or uh, problem. But once we begin training, those things come out really, really quickly. So we have an empty barbell complex that we start to teach guys from the beginning. Uh, clean pulls, RDL into clean pulls, hang power pulls. And cleans front squats, right? So we're coaching all five of those exercises, um, completely unloaded at minus a barbell, may even be a dial if they're really, really poor. Uh, but if you're doing those five exercises, they're getting set from the floor, can they rack? Let you know a lot about their upper body mobility, the T-spine mobility, the depth on the front squat. You'll see ankles, you'll see knees caving in. Just from us beginning to coach them in that, you can see a bunch of things. Then uh, that's that's one of our main routines we go through with the freshmen will be that barbell complex. But as we get into pull-ups and, you know, there's many other basic movements where you can see that there's an issue. And like you said, the blanket program, we start with the blanket program. As we're seeing you, we don't train in any other sports. So I have a staff of five or six guys. So we 
meet, make adjustments to every kid's program because everybody's going to be different. Like you say, it can't yeah. just be, this is what we're going to do and we're hard-headed and no matter what, everybody in here is doing that exercise. It doesn't work like that. So y'all, are y'all separating, like uh, when freshmen first come in, they're training separately from the rest of the team so that they can go through that kind of developmental period? Correct. Yeah, we, 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 we've done it both. We're not even in the room with the older guys, uh, but it's kind of worked better for us because nowadays all the freshmen don't come in in summer. Half of them are here in January, so there's not as many of them. So what we'll do is have them still be in there with what would be their normal group, but on separate racks. So they'll have one coach takes through that whole freshman or beginner program, uh, but they can still see the intensity and they can see what the other guys are doing. And it, it does create a sense of urgency on their part because they want to, even if they're doing something better, they, they want to do what the older guys are doing and, and they see how they're working and they see our standards um, live and in the flesh. So them being in the room, but just over there doing something different has worked really well for us. Very cool. Are there any areas where like you're like, where you're seeing guys coming in well-established? Yeah, it, I think it's regional really. So um, out here in Utah, there there's some, big guys you know so there's some linemen that come in big and strong and, and they are advanced with that stuff but maybe they work capacity before they, they, they can't do any of our running they're not used to they don't play basketball or run track you know maybe they just lift the weights and play football in the south we in mississippi if we you could tell a kid that was from say suburban georgia or even alabama where football programs are more well-funded and they have strength coaches and and all those things but then if somebody's from rural mississippi they, yeah. they might not have had any exposure to any of that or any coaching. So uh, we, you definitely get some. And more and more, especially again regionally, I got a bunch of buddies who left college football to go work in Dallas, Texas high school football. You know, yeah. like it, so there are areas, and I hopefully it continues to expand, where it's normal for high schools to have quality strength and conditioning coaches. It, it's such a huge part of them being able to get to college and be successful earlier. But also, I can't imagine what it does for a high school program if they have a strength coach in there playing somebody who doesn't, like that's that's damn near cheating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of. I made the statement in the past is like, you know how you win in sports is you have better athletes. Well, how do you get yeah. better athletes in in the pros? Well, you draft them or you or you trade for them. <laughs> you pay them, right? How do you get them in college? You recruit them. But how do you get them in high school? You gotta develop them. Gotcha. You got what you got. You know what? Um. Well, did that play any so? I guess from a recruiting standpoint, does that play any role? Like you see a kid who's maybe got this kind of raw strength, raw talent, but like he is from kind of some place where you know he hasn't had any development versus you got this other kid who maybe around the same level, but he's been coached his entire life. You see like in the, 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 uh, the less coached kid, like a, a little more opportunity for growth. For sure. And again, going back to my time at Ole Miss, Mississippi State was known for that. They build it. Off of, I'm going to go out in Mississippi and find these big kids who don't know, have any idea what they're doing. But in three or four years, he's going to be a draft pick, you know. <laughs> and they, they make a living off that. And there were times at Ole Miss we were passing on some of those kids. because uh, They're not all going to turn into that. But yeah. if, if you have access to a big pool of undeveloped who have, they have some physical attributes, they have the, the character stuff you're looking for where they're competitive and they play hard and they have some skill set on the field. But just training-wise, they've done nothing. Hey, that can be a recipe for success. And on the other side, some of the guys, you you don't worry about it because they look pretty when you're recruiting them and when they're on tape, the guys who have been coached and developed. Uh, but 
And they're easier when they first come in. Obviously, okay, freshman year, he can just easily get with the guys, but they may be closer to tapped out. Maybe that's what they are, you know, and they're not going to continue to get any better. So um, I don't know which one is is the preference or which one's better, but for sure, it's a, it's a decision you have to make when you're recruiting. Yeah. Um, okay, so from a, like, capacity standpoint, what would you tell high school athletes to focus on? <laughs> All right, I would talk to them. Any any young athlete who's not really being supervised to avoid garbage yards when they're young, you know. So what I mean by that is is running just with no intensity, with poor technique. So hey, I'm just gonna go run for a two three minute run on the on the pavement. If you want to do some some low low intensity steady state stuff, get on a bike, you know, that's fine. But avoid that being the bulk of your conditioning. Uh, you want to continue to be as sharp as possible uh, from a CNS standpoint, from your muscles actually being asked, being prepared to do what they're going to be asked to do when you play your sport. So you don't want to do all this change of direction, explosive things in sport. And then in the offseason, you're just running slow garbage yards. So um, stay away from some of that and try to make your conditioning a little more relevant to what you're doing. Uh, big thing is that the guys that are good at their sport, in high school have to understand that the talent level will even out really quickly. So you can't just depend on your talent. The guys that you're seeing in the NFL and you hear about, oh, so-and-so doesn't like to train or uh, Chris Paul doesn't squat in the NBA. Okay. You're talking about the outliers of the outliers of the outliers. That's, <laughs> that's probably not you. Um, so you develop and understand that you're going to have to work and that the commitment actually uh, increases for you. If you're going to be a college football player, it's 24-7, 365. Like, it, it's a full-round commitment to, to compete against those guys. So developing that mindset, that mentality of, you know, I have to work. I should be – if I'm the best player, I should also be the hardest worker. Just more that mindset of it. Yeah. Be good for young guys. Do you have any, like, markers? Like, uh, is there a – hey, you know, in high school, ideally we like to see you squatting one and a half times body weight. Do you want to make kind of markers like that? Or like mark what is what or do y'all even have markers for your own team? Like if so, or what are they? Yeah, so we have certain standards of sport. And yeah. I think there is um there's pluses and minuses to it. And there's pluses and minuses to telling the kids about it. So yeah. the kid is a really, really good player. That's number one. I tell our coaches all the time. Number one is can he play ball? Or is he good at football? Number two is gonna be um all all the anthropometrics, all his height, limb length, you know hand size, the things that we can't really change. Yeah. Then we start to get into power numbers, strength numbers, stuff like that. But those are way after those other two things that we can't do anything about. They are, they're, they're, throughout history, there's been things tracked that show you who's more likely to have success. All things being equal, I prefer a kid who can do this and, and X, Y, Z. It doesn't mean if a kid can't do it, he can't be a good player. And it doesn't mean that, that if you can, he will be a good player. It's just kind of where we try to get guys to and give them some type of standard. So if we get an old lineman in, um, he's already a 600-pound squatter, right? All right, you check those boxes. So now let's figure out what are some other things that you need to be focusing on. Is it diet? What What, what is it that can help you get better? Because in, in our opinion, that is strong enough. But uh, for us, we track a clean, a squat, a bench, a vert, 40. Um, we have standards for all of those guys. So Alignment. We think every scholarship Division One lineman should be able to clean 300 pounds with good technique. Uh, we think they should be able to squat a minimum of 450 pounds. Uh, we would consider 500 to be an elite squat. I know yeah. 
a lot of guys that that's a, that's a reasonable goal, but uh, we consider that elite for a college football player. You know, to depth on those things. Bench press, we're looking for three fifty plus uh, for for a big guy. And again, it doesn't always happen, but those would be standards. We're saying yes, he checks all the boxes. For skill guys, you look at some of the like, performance jumping, running type numbers. Thirty four is kind of the minimum on a vert for a DB or a receiver. You'd like it to be 37, 38, higher than that. Um, 40s, under 4.6 for a skill guy is, is ideal. We want to see that. And 10-yard split under 1.6. So 1.59, um, under 1.55 will be outstanding for Are you all tracking 40, Bert, all that for the linemen as well? Uh, there tends to be a bigger variance, uh, yeah. especially in the 40. Now, Vert. Is beautiful. Also for the big guys, we want a guy who can, you know, 26, 27, 28 uh, is ideal. And one easy thing to track on that is going to be body comp. So with those guys, we can kind of manage that because fat don't fly. So a lot of those big guys, uh, they go together. The, the leaner big guys can do pull-ups and can jump higher. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not uh, a, with the 40s on those guys, obviously it takes them longer than the skill. So there just is bigger variance, but you would love it to be under five three, under five four, but they can they can go from four nine to five nine. You know those, those, those yeah. big guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do uh, so are, are all your uh, metrics objective? Meaning they're all like set weights versus body weight uh, based percentage of body weight based. It is, and it's interesting. I've been evaluating that since I've been at Utah State because there's there's uh, less ideal body sizes here, typically. In the SEC, a DB is going to be what he is. He's going to be a, a corner is going to be five of eleven, six foot, one ninety. You know, and a safety is going to be a little taller, a little bigger than that. Here we have, we do have smaller guys, so I, I do have to assess that and maybe uh, I don't want to lower my standards. They are what they are, but maybe convert it to a body weight relative type number as opposed to a, just a hard standard number. Yeah, I was thinking like maybe on some of those more variable positions where you'd have make. Maybe a middle linebacker. You have a middle linebacker who's a stud at two sixty, and another one that's a stud at two thirty five or two twenty five. Like a uh, uh, maybe a uh, a D end where you've got a bigger D end or like a more longer lanky D end. You know, with a bigger dude to kill the number, <laughs> the smaller guys. That's a stretch, man. Yeah, but the other thing that comes with that, and it's even the whole reason the combine people criticize the combine and the drills. Things they say it's not not as relevant anymore, but you have so much data now to compare it to. So you have years and years and years of saying a 40 is this or a bench press is this or a squat is this. You don't have 80 years of knowing, OK, 1.6 body weight versus 2.1 body weight. Yeah, you have to put in your mind of what a 500 pound squat is. You know, yeah, 100%. It's just a little harder to transition. Or even when you're talking to coaches, if we talk about fly 10 times. Versus 40, the fly 10 time means nothing to them. I'm like, Coach, he, he had a .94 flying 10. They don't, they don't know what that means. Yeah, they know 4-3. Yeah. So. Well, and, you know, the other part about behind that would be like, <clears throat> hey, the sport of football is somewhat standard, meaning like you're going to have – like if you're playing DN, I was thinking about it for myself. It's like I was a smaller DN who had higher strength metrics. Which was some of what allowed me to play the end at a smaller weight. You know what I mean? It's like if if I didn't have those higher strength metrics, I'd probably get my ass kicked. Yeah. So it's like if if you if you can still have these outputs 
at a variable weight, it's like, hey, that's, you're showing like, yeah, you can have these outputs, you know, in, in the standard environment of football. Yeah. Um, and, and again, with some of those positions that there are big variants, so say even a running back, you talk about linebackers, they tend to be not as big a band with that linebacker, but running back, you can have, you can literally have a 170 pound. So those guys I would give, I'd put them in the, the next category. So maybe the running yeah. backs got to hit the tight end numbers. The 230 pound backs got to hit the tight end numbers. And the 170 pound back, I group it with receivers. You know, so we, we will, if there's an outlier, we'll, we'll move them up or down if we can. Very cool. Uh, how, like, how do y'all typically structure your, your, your training program? And maybe this is on a, um, like an in season, off season, or like, um, a, a block, uh, different blocks. Like, I mean, are y'all, are y'all, are y'all trying to develop more base strength in the off season and then kind of build that into more speed and velocity power, like in the, in the, in the summertime, like. How do you kind of like structure your, your yearly plan? Yeah, so uh, we've done it. We've done it both ways. Um, shifting priority, being method A, and then increasing overall demands on work capacity, option B. So done it both ways. So option A, um, shift priorities. We would start earlier in the offseason, having a higher relative volume in the weight room. Uh, and we can talk about how I, how I uh, assess volume if we want to get into that. but. Greater volume in the weight room, less on the field relative to what we're going to do in the summer. And in the summer, it will flip. The summer now, the field work becomes a priority. The volumes there increase, um, and that's the priority and the focus of our training. Weight room comes down. I did that for several years. Um, I felt like it was a little too much drastic of a change. So the early weight room volume, the field work has to be the priority as you get ready for camp. So there's there's not really a way around that. So. If I'm making the majority of the weight room work early off season, guys will come from off periods, maybe core work, low backs. You know, you're, you're, you're cooking guys a little bit in the weight room, which is fine. It's far away from the season, but you are getting some of that. And then the same thing happens if when you shifted the focus to your sprint work and you change direction work in the summertime. If it's a significant enough increase in volume to now make it the priority of your training, that's that's pretty sharp right there. So now we try to avoid any sharp increases in volume, intensity, or complexity. We try to move the things pretty uh, standard together. So now we just increase the work capacity slightly from A block to B block. So if we have uh, whatever our weight room volume is going to be based on prevalent stable, uh, whatever our speed yardage is. So say we're conditioning is 3,000 yards a week pretty much all year round. But speed work, where it used to maybe be 150 yards a session and we bump it to 250, in the summer session, we close that gap down a little bit. So now early in the year, all year round, weight room volumes maybe not as high as it used to be in the winter, but the spring volume's up a little bit. So now maybe a session is 200, you know, and we'll stick with that for at least a four-week block, maybe an entire eight-week block, and then the next time we train, we can drive them up each a little bit. Weight room work and the speed work will go up um, a little bit. Now each day is manipulated based on what the priority for that day is, and, you know, they're not all standard, they're not all the same. But but that's kind of the way we move it. We will increase the relative volume of both of them slightly in our second phase. Gotcha. Okay. And then, uh, what's your what's your weekly kind of layout look like off season? So we're talking uh, January, February, off of a off of a bowl. Like yeah. How many how many weight how many weight? What's what's a weekly layout look like? 
So we, we train four days a week of mandatory work, and then we'll have two other days that are kind of catch up, catch off. If there's a, something you're missing from your arsenal that you need to work on, we, we come in on those days. We train on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. The on-field work stays the same throughout the entire year. Monday and Thursday are going to be our speed and power days um, on the field. So that's you're talking about acceleration work, change of direction work, your plyos, um, deceleration training. All that stuff's happening on Mondays and Thursdays. Tuesdays and Fridays are going to be our conditioning days. So days, days it's a little more uh, since we're coming in, we're going to work a little bit on those days. Doing that because the speed work is, is our priority. I think that's what makes them special. Um, but there are also things that you can't really perform in states of fatigue. So you want to catch them when they're as fresh as possible. So after an off day, after a weekend, as long as they didn't ruin their body over the weekend, they should physically be their freshest on Monday and Thursday from our layouts, those things. Conditioning is more mental than anything. So you can fight through it and get through it and, and execute the prescribed work regardless. Uh, the weight room work, it changes. Our focus shifts early in the off season or early after a break. So uh, we have eight weeks in the winter like we did this year, and then we have another eight weeks in the summer. Talking about the first four weeks of each of those periods, uh, we go lower body focus, upper body focus. Lower body focus, upper body focus. So Monday and Thursday would be our lower body work. Tuesdays and Fridays, upper body work. Um, going from being off to training, you're running every day, which affects your lower body, obviously. Um, so not wanting to just smash them in the face right out the gate. Um, I feel like that upper body day, they love it, first of all. And it gives them a little bit of a, a refresh, a recharge, save their legs a little bit early in the offseason. And then also, and, and being here emphasizes even more, we have more guys that need to just focus on building some mass, you know, and, and you need more volume to do that. So for us, to, we can't let our upper body go, you know, upper back work and, and glute work and pull it. We have to get this stuff in. That's where you can pack on the most muscle mass. So maybe not doing the most athletic, most functional or my favorite exercise, but it is things that to help these guys body comp. Uh, moving on from the first week block, the second week block, we now go straight power strength. So Mondays and Thursdays are now all explosive work. So all of your Olympic movements, med ball throws, loaded jumps, uh, upper body plow metrics, all those things happen on Monday and Thursday. And then Tuesdays and Fridays are your squats, your hinges, your presses, your rows. Um, how, so when you say Olympic work, what are the Olympic movements that, that you guys are using? Are you doing full, uh, cleans from the floor caught in a squat position? Like talk me through some of the, some of the, the, the clean stuff. Um, cause, cause I'm coming from the LSU, the Tommy Moffat background, like Olympic, uh, movements are a kind of foundation of all that and then um, of course some people don't use them at all and so like can i hear like your thoughts on all that yeah for, for my personal training and my personal preference they they are a foundational thing but this is kind of what i was talking about where it doesn't work for everybody so as i've gotten a little older been around more athletes uh, there are other tools that i've become much more tolerant of my preference would still be to snatch and clean and jerk and do all those things uh, but some of the dumbbell versions of those lifts, again, some of the med ball work, some of the loaded jumps are maybe better tools in a setting where you're working with a lot of different skill sets um, of your coaches. You're working with different skill sets of coaches and you're working with different skill sets of the athletes. What's something that we can actually execute at a high level? I don't want to do a jerk just to because it's my favorite exercise. I, I, we have to be able to execute this. The entire room has to be able to do it. Um, so if it's not, it's not. So at this point, 
be able to do full cleans just in the warm-up. Again, getting everything lined up. Mobility check right there on everything. Shoulders, wrists, to knees, to hips, to elbows. You can, I mean, to ankles. Yeah, it's, a, it's a full test of everything. So we'll do that. Unloaded, empty bar, up to a grain or 95 pounds, you know, 50 kilos, whatever it is. Not up to yeah, 40 kilos um, on that. But then our main lifts, we will do all, we still catch cleans and we'll do them from all different positions. So we will not catch that in the bottom, not full cleans. We will do power cleans. That's what we test um, because we train off of our test numbers. So I don't want a guy full cleaning on test day and then he's getting buried every time we do some version of the clean. But we will do power cleans from the floor, from below the knee and from a hang at different times, different cycles. Uh, we also combine those. Uh, also, we will do just the pool version. So straight on, low body finish that leg drive. Um, getting vertical as we can, we'll do that from the floor and from below the knee. Uh, we will do a panda pull or a high pull or a power pull, whatever whatever your terminology is. We'll do that from the hang. Um, those are some of our main ones there. Uh, we will do dumbbell jerks. We'll do dumbbell snatches. We'll do kettlebell snatches. Um, but we've gotten a little bit away from the barbell snatches and jerks. Just like I mentioned, the overhead mobility on the guys was, was becoming an issue for some of them. So those are kind of our main Olympics variations. Very cool. I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> one of the, uh, so we, we, we use a program called the level method and it's, um, basically what it does is it takes, um, all the different capacities and a variety of skills and uses 15 tests to kind of assess that. And then it assigns a level color for each of these capacities. And then in your training, you are doing the workout based off of your color. So if you're a higher level in this capacity, you can do a higher level workout. If you're lower level, you can do a lower level workout so that people are getting the appropriate dosing. Like if we're training whatever strength this today or if we're doing running endurance this day, that you're doing the appropriate dosing for you and, again, not doing something way over the top or way under. But one of the tests is a uh, it's a 10-minute every minute on the minute kettlebell snatch with a 53 mm. and the highest level is 25 reps every minute on the minute kettlebell snatch for 10 minutes. And, uh, yeah, we, I've done 20 is the most <laughs> I've gotten. And like the gap between 20 and 25, like that's literally just snatching kettlebells for 10 straight minutes. It's like the, the things that people could do that. I'm just like, who the hell can do that? <laughs> Again, specific adaptations, right? You got to train like that. You got to be exposed to it. It'll break you off. Dude, it, it will. It's so funny when people do it for the first time. They're like, what was that? <laughs> like, they're just like so unprepared for the way that's going to feel. It's funny. Like people who have done it, they walk in, they're like, oh, dude, we're doing kettlebells today. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> Everyone else is like, this bad? Like, it's bad. What's happening? Um, <laughs> um, so so uh, one of the things you kind of been talking about a bit is uh, like body comp and nutrition. And, and I'd love to hear like y'all's strategies, your theories, like what's your communication to, to your athletes is. Like one of the things I, I try to get across to high school athletes is, is um, in our areas, like, hey, look, here's the deal. You're all playing the same sport. Most of y'all are on like some competitive team. You're doing all these individual sessions with these, you know, expert skill developers. Uh, most of your guys are 
training here or training with some other strength and conditioning coach. The one thing none of y'all are doing is eating right. You all eat like assholes. So if you wanted to have one advantage over every single kid in this city and across the country, it would be eating right. Like the one thing you can do that no one else is currently doing is nutrition. And uh, so I'd like to hear kind of like your statement with regards to that. Yeah, you are 100% right. They, all these things you mentioned that they're spending money on and should I take creatine and should I do this and should I do that? If you would eat and sleep, I mean, it, it, sky's the limit and they don't want to do either one of those two things, which are free and fairly easy to do. Um, so we just it's, it's an education thing um, with college athletes that age, uh, unless they are very, very, very mature. Our strategy is to make it as dummy proof as possible. You have to have easy access to it. It has to be in front of their face. And even then, they're going to complain. At South Carolina, it was the most unbelievable nutrition setup I've ever been around. I mean, crab legs, different, whatever you wanted, whatever you wanted. Every day, there were three, four different meat options. And kids would walk right past it and try to sneak out. Like, they had to actively sneak past the food so they can go across the street and go to Bojangles and get some fried chicken. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but, <laughs> Trying to educate them on the importance of it. Uh, having guys over here, it's not as big a deal, but this is in Mississippi, they, they're just expanding what they would tolerate. Things they would even consider eating, you know, was, was tough. So you have to educate them, expose them to different things, gradually get it in there. Um, but when we're doing body counts, we want guys to understand it's not just the number on the scale and the way we affect the muscle mass versus the fat is going to be on the, on the diet. You know, we're going to train and do all these things, but if you're not eating properly, we're not going to be able to gain lean muscle mass. We're not going to be able to lose fat. And you're just looking at the scale. All right, yeah, you gain 10 pounds, but it's fat. You know, that's not what we want. That's not going to help us accomplish our on-field goals. Just breaking it down simple, not getting too complex with them about what's happening, but just let them see, all right, you cut weight, but all you lost was muscle. You know, because we'll have big guys like that. I got to get down. I got to get down. And they'll start themselves. They don't eat anything. And muscle mass is going. Energy levels are down. Understanding. That stuff, as opposed to just the number on the scale, um, getting them to to look in the mirror, take before and after shots, you know, see what it physically looks like, and then how much muscle mass are you carrying are kind of the things we're we're going to emphasize with our guys here. Um, after performance, how are you playing? That's that's another number one. Nobody's going to say a word to you if you're a skinny little dude and you're out here kicking butt. Nobody's going to say, "Oh, he needs to gain weight." If you're a big overweight guy and you look great, you're not in shape, you're moving people all over the field, nobody's going to say anything. But as soon as you're not playing well, that's going to be the first. Get his big ass in there, he needs to lose some weight. First thing. <laughs> so just understanding that and what they should actually be looking at, caring about. What do y'all use for your body count measures? Uh, we got an in-body over here, which is nice. Uh, yeah, it's, it's which, one, which one do y'all do y'all have? I'd have to look to see, but uh, I think we have. It was. Uh, I'm not gonna look right. Uh, I'm right here. Yep. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I don't know which one we have. The 720, maybe. Dude, I love that thing. It's um, it's so powerful to like be able to just show someone like, see, um, especially you can for see what a bad weekend does. Yeah. Yeah, you can see like um, you can see what a bad weekend does. You can see what when, when you were sick. Mm-hmm. Um, your ability to see uh, how you're bloating and all that kind of stuff is like super powerful on that. And I think being able to put it down on a 
having those metrics and be able to, where they, where they can actually see it. Cause like, um, we call it gamifying. It's being able to, you know, create objective metrics and data that the person can see and then try to manipulate. So, you know, we can be like, okay, you know, here's where you are and here's where we need you to be. And then we want this to track this way. That's your goal. This yeah, next so time we do this, it's, the dot graph on the bottom of that sheet is super powerful. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what about for, well, let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, do y'all use, do y'all have a nutritionist at all? So we, we do. Um, she's actually yeah. a part-time employee and has to work with the entire athletic department. So yeah. that is something, yeah, it's, it's tough here. Other places, the last several places I've been, we did have full-time dedicated nutritionists and it is a huge advantage. So. People get into age, should we hire a sports scientist? I'm like, no, we need a full-time nutritionist to help these kids build plates, learn how to shop, learn how to cook, educate them. Like, we, can, we can help a little bit in that area, but we are not experts in that area, so we should look into that. I was curious if y'all used any type of like um, data or tracking for their for their nutrition. I mean, do they... Do they do they have sheets or an app or some way to track kind of like what they've been eating? Yeah, you know, food logs and things like that. So I have a guy on my staff, again, being a little shorthanded in the nutrition department. Uh, we have about, I think, 12 to 15 guys at any time that we're tracking. And we will sit at every meal and basically put stuff on their plate or take stuff off their plate to just make sure at least what we're seeing is what we would have planned for them. Um, so that, that's what we're into now. But if we did have a full-time nutrition staff, that would definitely be the goal. They got to log in. They got to check. They got to take pictures of what they're eating and send it to them. You know, all that is things that we've done in the past. What are the rules? I remember, like, back in the day, there were rules with regards to, like, what you could provide. And there was, like, you could only provide supplements. There was, like, X percent of calories based on protein. But, like, from um, – from a peri workout standpoint, in other words, like this is what you're going to eat before, during, and after your training. Like, how do y'all did y'all provide that? Like, how do you approach that? Yeah, so for us, we have simple stuff. We have your post recovery, your post workout recovery shakes in the weight room. Um, you know, your muscle milk, your Gatorade, all that stuff we have available to them. We also have a fueling station available in our. It's in our weight. It's in the building. It's right underneath the weight room. Um, and in there, it's kind of more snack foods, nuts, fruits, yogurts, bagels, you know, and all that stuff is available through two different blocks. It, it, luckily, it's around when we train. There's a morning block and an afternoon block. So it's kind of on them. We can't make them do it. But what we do is, is meals. Any day we train, we cater in two meals. We're going to cater in a breakfast and we're going to cater in an early dinner slash late lunch around four or five o'clock for the guys. And that is mandatory every day. Um, so those are things that football themselves fund and have to buy, and that's totally allowed. And that's my preference over supplements anyway. Supplements yeah. should be in addition to your diet, you know, not replacing it. Just making sure they have access to whole food on days we're training. We're at least getting sufficient calories in because we, we have guys who will lose significant amount of weight over the weekend. And then gradually through the week, just because they have access to these meals now. You know, So now Monday through Friday, you gain seven, eight pounds. And it can't can't keep it up. So having access to whole food is big. Bro. And we, uh, I told Coach, not breakfast or any specific meal, pre and post workout. We got to get make sure these guys have access to fuel, and uh, they they've done a good job with that. 
Yeah, very. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> I think people don't quite know what it takes to weigh three hundred plus pounds. Yeah, as an athlete, I mean, it doesn't take much to be a three hundred pound video game video game player, but like to be a three hundred pound football player, where you're working out twice a day every day in the in the heat and doing like output. I'm not talking about going on walks. I'm talking about like some serious Bro. caloric output. Kind of activity uh, is unbelievable. Yeah. You're having to consume just thousands of calories. Yep. And, and if and you don't do it, pounders, they, they carry back to the in body. If a 300 pounder is carrying, you know, much mu- how much of that is muscle mass and the caloric requirement of that muscle mass, the, the energy expenditure of that much mass is, I don't, yeah, people don't have any, any idea. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, just from not eating. Yeah. As much that weekend, it's not that they, they didn't eat. It's not that they didn't fast for a whole weekend. It's just they just didn't eat six thousand calories every day for that weekend. They ate a normal meal that like two to two thousand calories, like a normal person would. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, they're not. I mean, they're only dropping whatever that is, two percent, two to five percent of their body weight ish over a weekend. But <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you, you you let off for one weekend and you lost. You lost seven pounds. Yeah, and that's a good point you make. It's a small percentage of body weight, and those fluctuations are going to happen, especially at those sizes. So there, you get a good fart that could be two pounds, you know. But uh, you want to look for trends. If it's okay, every Monday you're showing up light, or for two straight weeks you're showing up light, or during critical periods. If we're in spring ball, or if we're in camp, and somebody's wilting away, you know, those are now you're at risk of injury. Something's happening. You're either not eating properly or overtraining. Something's happening, and the next thing that could likely happen as an injury. So um, it's not just that the body weight is about the weight. Sometimes you're just trying to figure out what else is happening lifestyle wise or, or adaptation wise. Yeah, because you need, I mean, uh, that weight, it plays a role in your performance. Uh, it, it, it can be a resemblance of the muscle mass that you have. It can be a resemblance of the, uh, your hydration levels. And then like the, the, the fuel storage you have in, in you. And if that's low, that's going to have all those will affect how you perform on the field. For sure. What do you, uh, let me ask you this from like an in season standpoint, how are y'all structuring training to ensure you're not seeing any drastic fall off in, a, in, in capacities while at the same time, like being prepared to, to perform on Saturday? Yeah. So this is where the relationship with the head coach, with the head coach is so big. Um, applying the, the scientific principles that we do all off season. And a lot of times the season comes and no, none of those principles are considered anymore. Uh, it'd be frustrating at times. I'm lucky to be in a situation right now where that is not the case. So manipulating practice, um, different focuses each day, things that, that okay, we did open field one-on-ones yesterday. We're going to tighten it down. We're going to do red zone one-on-ones just, just so it's not back-to-back. Sprint exposures or volumes or all those things, being able to manipulate practice uh, is big for us. So in season this year, what we did was was awesome. Play Saturday. Sunday was a complete recovery day. I don't know if you remember, normally, typically Sunday, you come and you try to squeeze a workout out of the guys. And they might be silly if you had a win. They might be all depressed if you lost. But they're all going to be beat up. Anybody that played in the game Saturday is going to be beat up on Sunday. Giving them Sunday a full recovery day helped us tremendously having our first workout of the week being a great workout. So they would come in Monday afternoon. So they basically had. 36 hours, all day Saturday, I mean, all day Sunday and Monday morning. Oh, we brought them in Monday afternoon, get our first lift in. 
being that now they're a little recovered, I was able to make that our big lift for the week. So that's where their strength workout was, that the the higher prescribed loads were coming on that Monday lift. For us, I feel like we got to fill in the buckets of what's not happening in practice. Guys that are playing in games, their conditioning levels are going to be fine. Um, Their sprint yardages are going to be fine. They're doing what they have to do, obviously. So if you're playing, guys that are not playing, you know, that are in the threes or they're not on scout team and they're not getting reps, those are the guys you got to worry about. But let's just talk about guys that aren't playing. They're going to get their sprint volume in. They're going to get their conditioning work in. They're obviously getting their change of direction work in. They're not getting heavy strength work in on the field. Even up front where they're moving people, it is still, that's all RFD. That's all explosive stuff. So being able to actually lift heavy in season all year, I think is is important. So we, we were able to do that on Mondays. And then as the week progressed, for the practice, Tuesday and Wednesday were big practices. Thursday was a lighter day. And then Friday was a shorter practice. So to kind of pair with that, we able to, to piggyback on Wednesday and sneak in more of a potentiating type workout, um, explosive stuff, pulling out some chains, keeping everything lighter, um, and then sneaking in some bodybuilding work. So Monday was our heavy strength day. Wednesday was explosive. I mean, light explosive, 40%, 30% type stuff, explosive work, followed by some bodybuilding. And then at the end of the week, our younger guys or who guys who are not playing would get a combo, kind of like a, an off-season type workout. So now it's a normal prescribed intensity range, but we're doing everything. We're doing your cleans, your squats, your benches. All that stuff will be for the young guys that maybe aren't playing quite as much. On those, uh, on the Monday and Wednesday days, is it all is it all percentage-based work? And uh, you keep it still pretty high percentage and then just adjusting volume a little bit? Yeah, so we, it's, it's both. So the volume would be reduced, and it's about 10% off of what they would work with in a given rep range. Uh, in the off season, so we're still going over eighty percent, but we're not going over ninety percent. Gotcha. And we try to stay there as often as possible. We go over eighty percent three out of every five weeks in season, and it just ramp up a little bit, ramp back. Okay, you just got undulating it. People do exposures on that. Now Wednesday, I really only track things that are over sixty percent. So the Wednesday stuff is so light, the explosive work that if it's so if it's 35% or 45%, I don't really care. You know, it's kind of a standard weight um, yeah. for those guys based on position group. So that that's not prescribed in intensity, but the, the strength work is. Gotcha. And then uh, in doing that, I mean, I imagine you're seeing these strength levels um, maintain and stay pretty high throughout the season where you're having, you're, where you're still having good on-field performance at the end of the year versus seeing a decrease in performance due to a decrease in strength. And then the flip flop of that is each year you're stacking on each other. So you're having four years of like development versus an off season of development and an in season of, of detraining. Yeah, absolutely. That's such valuable time, right? So you talking about from August to December or January, and you can't give up all that time, especially I tell, I tell all our recruits, I tell their parents, you're 18 and 19 one time. So if you're 18 years old, that, those are valuable five months. You will never be able to get strong as easily as you will right now. When you are 28, 29, these games will come much harder. So we need to maximize these early years where we can get good training in, whether we're playing football or not. Now, football is obviously the priority when we're in season. We got to be smart about what we're doing with guys who are playing a lot. But look, we, we, we got to go. We can't waste all this time. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I try to. 
I use that same terminology. I say, hey, you only go through puberty once. Yep. And that is the the one time in your life you're going to be able to set your foundation for fitness at such an absurd level, whether you end up playing college sports or, or not. Like uh, this is the only time you buy, your body is basically on steroids uh, without <laughs> taking them exogenously, right? Don't screw that time period up where you can build tremendous amounts of strength, tremendous amounts of power and speed and, and, and muscularity by being a single sport athlete who, who does uh, only that sport all year round and you miss out on it because <laughs> yep. it's like uh, trying to, trying to make that up. Like if you're starting at 13, 12, 13 uh, versus starting at 22, like you just, you're never going to make that time up. You never make it up and establishing that base as early as possible, man. It gives you so many options of things you can manipulate later. If you're 22 and weak, you, Guess what? And you're a college football player, you have to keep lifting weights, bro. There's nothing we can do. Uh, you have to get stronger. If you're already strong and things are not feeling great, okay, we can manipulate some of your training to help you now, to help you even feel better or find a weakness. It just gives you more to play with and a lot more bandwidth, a lot more uh, a lot more uh, excess of what you may even need. You build a great strong base right here. End the season, even if you drop 5%, you're still way stronger. And somebody who didn't have that base who's been fighting and clawing to try to catch you from the beginning, even if you've lost some throughout the course yeah. of the year. I was talking to someone the other day about uh, I trained a, a, a long snapper for the Titans, and they were talking. They were asking me like, kind of, "How do you approach like their training?" I said, "We just look for the we look for the one area where we can have the biggest off-season impact. <clears throat> we might go like, here's five things we could work on, right? Or like, what's the one thing that's gonna that's gonna move the needle the most in your performance?" And for almost all young athletes, youth athletes, like you are weak until you hit puberty. You can't even be strong until you hit puberty, right? So during that period of puberty, like the goal is to put on that muscle mass, to put on that strength, to capitalize on that period of, of, of time so that you've checked that box off. I'm strong now. And being a strong 18 to 20 year old or 22 year old, now we can start working on some other gaps. But like, if you're a, if you're weak as puppy piss at 20, the only get or 22 or whatever, there's only one thing we can focus on. Yep, it's getting you strong, and yep. and and then now you're behind the curveball because there are people who are strong at 20 and 22 who are now able to work on those of that that next you know thing that they they've got. Yeah. Absolutely, and with younger athletes, um, so you get into high school, middle school guys. Um, that's the easiest way to impact everything. It's going to universally drive almost uh, every other attribute. If you can get stronger at earlier ages and when the skill of the sport that you're playing, when the skill level of the field you're playing on is not that high, strength has a huge impact. So if I'm a really, really strong 15-year-old, I can probably impose my will on this field uh, at 15. By the time you're in the NFL, the skill level is so high that strength actually, even though those are all strong, powerful men, the differences in strength means less and less because they're so good at what they do. Get that advantage. Yeah. Really yeah. You're, yeah. The, the advantage of strength at the higher level of skill goes away. But the right. thing is like, they're all strong. They're all strong. They wouldn't <laughs> like, be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you yeah. can't get through that field without that. Is Yeah. Yeah. That looks like it is alignment in the NFL. Like there are dudes that probably squat 800 pounds. 
<laughs> well, there's no one that only squats 200 pounds. You know no. what I mean? <laughs> They're all strong. They're just variations of how strong they are. Right. Um, what do y'all do? Y'all, or let me ask you this. Y'all, how are some of the ways you help manipulate recovery? I uh, Again, I try to tell them about sleeping and eating. I believe that those are the two big rocks. And if you're not doing them, you're kind of in trouble. But we obviously have a training room where they have hot tubs, cold tubs, Normatex. Um, they can get scraped. They can get massaged. We we do all those things in there. Uh, Anderson's big on massage. He he loves it. He got massage chairs in the locker room. Um, so in my honest opinion, outside of eating and sleeping, I think a lot of it's mental. So it's I tell them, let's do those big things, and then let's find something else that you enjoy doing. If it's coming in here and doing static stretch, if it's coming in here and doing some low-intensity fight work, uh, hurdle mobility stuff, foam rolling, in addition to all the things available to you in the training room, we get that in. We'll have certain periods during the week, especially in-season or spring ball, because now in-season and spring ball, you want them to feel good. That is the priority. Uh, you have to perform on those during those time blocks. So the goal is to make you feel good so you can perform. So we'll have designated times during the week where this is recovery time. This is a recovery day. And we're going to do one of those things we just mentioned. We're going to find something that you have to do uh, at this time. And it's mandatory. We're doing it. We'll have two or three of those blocks throughout the week. Plus, there's many, many other hours where it's available to them that they want to do. We'll have now, off season, some of that inflammation, some of that discomfort, it's fine. I don't care if you're sore or not fully recovered by the next training session. This is about that. This is just about us working right here. You don't have to be at your best by Friday. We're on, in season, you do. So recovery outside of the sleeping and eating, because you can't break them down to the point of risking an injury in the off season. But from session to session, you don't have to be at 100%. We're in season and spring ball. When we're getting those scrimmages and games, you want them to feel as close to 100% as possible. Um, offer those things to them, teaching it to them, and, and uh, playing mental games with them, whatever it is to make them feel like thousand percent is what we got to do yeah i think that's a that's a good uh, way of thinking it's like eating and sleeping are the mandatories there's yeah. things that actually cause physiological recovery right like you like if you like you can't recover without sleep <laughs> you can't recover without food in your body the rest of it's a little bit of a more personal kind of like this thing makes me feel good exactly and some people are like I hate the cold tub because it's just, it's just, you know, it's cold, it's uncomfortable. I hate it, it makes me freeze, you know, makes me feel stiff afterwards. And some people are like, I hate this stupid foam roller. <laughs> you know? And think about that, right? So stress is stress and stress is cumulative. So your your whole body system has to deal with all the total stress being applied to it. So we used to like make guys do mandatory cold tubs. If you're somebody, especially being lazy, doesn't want to do it, that's a pain there. If you really hate the cold tub, now you're adding the stress of the cold and the mental stress of this person has to expend discipline and willpower and their attitudes getting bad because you're making them get in this thing. So you've just compounded the stress. They're not recovering from anything if they hate the implement that you're using. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good good uh like a good uh framework for people. Um yeah, I think uh like I love the cold tub, but I just like I come out of the cold tub all right, I feel good. Like I'm, I'm energized. I've seen it like, like steal people's souls for the rest of the day. <laughs> like they're just like, they are freaking out in the cold tub. 
they go and they just they go into shock. They can't breathe, and they're just like they get out, and they're like they come in the next day, and they're just like eyes are glassed over. <laughs> like, you're all right. They're like I'm just still recovering from that cold stuff. <laughs> uh very cool dude all right well uh let's wrap this up um man any any advice that you would give to high school athletes um looking to, to play college sports um a couple things if if you think you're a college athlete or a potential college athlete you have to separate yourself from the normal high school athlete when if a college team comes to watch a game they shouldn't have to figure out who you are. So this is just reality. The, the, the scholarship or whatever, college football players on a high school football field look different. So your performance should look different. That starts way off the field. Like I mentioned before, your work ethic has to be good. Um, you got to learn how to be coachable. You got to learn how to uh, be a good teammate. These are important, important things for high school guys. Your grades obviously are important. Um, and we mentioned the, some of the training things earlier. Stay away from garbage yards. Let's get in the habit of training year round or finding ways to train. Even if you are a multi-sport athlete, um, I think it's big to do both. I think it's big, especially when you're younger to play a variety. Of but as you get older, especially in the sport of football in college, most of what we do is train. Most of it's not football. So just getting in the habit of that, understanding the mentality of that, um, starting to learn how to be around the weight room and, and on the field. Um, if you can do that 10th, 11th, 12th grade, you got a big head start. Thank you, man. All right, brother. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Appreciate you. All right. MBS Fitness Radio out. Thank you for listening to NBS Fitness Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends, follow us on social media, and check out our website at www.nbsfitness.net. Hit the subscribe button and tune in next time for more NBS Fitness Radio.